Hello and welcome. I'm your host Petri, and this show helps you to build your company. This episode is packed with entrepreneurial goodies. Eric Pyrenius talks about his first startup that he was bootstrapping with his co-founders. The journey was full of pizzas, but also hardware, international expansion, mergers and acquisitions, and finally some exit suspense. We also cover angel investing, food tech, and impact investing. Let's get started. How does it feel to sleep in a car? Oh, it's uh, cold, uh, but you sleep like a baby. You wake up in the middle of the night screaming and wondering where you are. But it, um, it's a good experience because you learn that some things are more important than others and the bed is really nice. I thought it's too cold in the Nordics to sleep in the car. In the US they do that. But, you know, how, how do you do that in Sweden? Uh, I mean, you can't really do it in the winter, I guess. Um, so when I slept in the car, that was when uh, I was running my own startup and I totally bootstrapped. Uh, me and my co-founders we went on sales trips to meet restaurants to try to sell them an online ordering system uh, so we could put them on our marketplace. Um, and we couldn't afford to, to stay at a hotel or a hostel. Uh, so we had to find a way to, to uh, bootstrap. And one way was, of course, to, to sleep in the car. And we tried to uh, get free food as well, which wasn't that difficult because we sold to restaurants. And all the restaurants wanted to show us that they had the best pizza or kebab or salad or falafel uh, uh, in the city. So we were offered more free food than, than we could take. What was first? Pizza, you know, you wanted to eat pizza or business, you know, or what is, is there some, you know, crazy story why you decided to, to focus on pizzas? Uh, it's always the, your own need first, right? So food, food was number one. Um, it all started that uh, me and my co-founders, we were uh, slightly hungover a Sunday uh, while we were studying at university in Sweden, in the city of Linköping. We wanted to order pizza, but we didn't have any cash. We used all of it the, the evening before, apparently. We didn't remember, but obviously that was the case. So we wanted somehow to be able to pay by card, and we didn't really want to go to the restaurant to pick it up. We wanted to have it home delivered. Of course, we realized that this wasn't possible. Uh, this was back in 2005. Um, so it was pre, pre-Facebook, pre, uh, pre-smartphones. Um, so we decided to uh, try to build that service ourselves. Uh, which later become became what we um, uh, in Sweden called online pizza, and it's now under name Fedora. There was a previous episode where Elias Alta, a co-founder of uh, Vault, was referring to you. He was saying that we thought we were up against basically pizza online. This was back then very web-focused and early 2000 kind of product. And, and then he goes on uh, talking about that they are mobile-first company. But, you know, to, to listen to more of that episode, check it out yourself. But uh, so was there anyone else doing that? Or you were pretty much the first one in the market. You came to Finland and other markets as well. We were, were the first ones in Sweden. Uh, there was one company that had just started in Denmark called Just Eat, which is now a UK-based company. Um, I don't think there was anyone in Europe as I can remember, at least. So we were starting out, we could look up to just eat as role models, but they were so early. So we basically had to invent everything ourselves. Um, what, we, what we did see was there were some uh, attempts to try to do something online for restaurants, uh, but nothing that was built into a marketplace and nothing that, that worked that you could order from. So we saw that others had the idea, which sort of encouraged us that maybe it's not that stupid after all. And you have to remember that this was 2005. So 
online ordering in general was uh, was very immature. I think the only ones, uh, the only kinds of products that you could order then was like books uh, and some things related to travel, like hotel rooms and flights. I think you could book online, but that was about it. Ordering anything else online was was weird. I can imagine that you know there was no iPhones. Basically, even paying something online wasn't that easy, and getting orders and getting restaurants in there, a lot of hurdles. Uh, the stack was not really where it's today, so it might be even for some people quite difficult to think. You know, all the obstacles you've been going through at the time. Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, it was it was so early days, so it wasn't just about the consumer behavior that that wasn't there already. It was also about how you build the business. Uh, there was no startup ecosystem uh, there wasn't a horde of angel investors you could approach uh, we didn't have uh, entrepreneurial role models to look up to uh, who had been in, in the similar space before um, we didn't have uh, like extensive framework for how to develop an e-commerce site uh, we had to that was basically how we started out we, we spent the first five to six weeks learning how to build an e-commerce site and, and getting it online um, and writing everything from scratch, of course, everything ended up as as terrible spaghetti code that no one else than uh, than me and my co-founders could understand, and possibly not even us in the end. Um, so everything everything was a hustle, um, and I'm so happy for entrepreneurs nowadays, where there are so many things that you could just uh, use as a foundation when when building a startup, and you have. Uh, lots of guides, have lots of, of events. Uh, you can meet other entrepreneurs. You can learn from them. Uh, just a total different ecosystem today, and I'm so grateful for everyone else who can <laughs> leverage that. Really good traction, because you needed to sign up. Obviously, the end users, the hungry students, or whoever they were, the first ones to, to get to the system, but also the the best, uh, restaurants. Uh, I don't think you had a delivery uh, as a third component, or did you? No, initially we didn't. Um, so it started as, I mean, to put it simply, like we spent slightly more than a month just learning how to code and, and developing a very rudimentary uh, online ordering platform. Um, then we spent one month going around to restaurants locally and trying to convince them that it's a good idea to be online. Uh, that was very, very hard. But eventually we, we managed to convince the three or four restaurants locally in the city where we lived. Uh, when we had those signed up, then luckily for us, it was about time to go back to school in August uh, after the first summer that we spent building the company. So we, uh, we went back to school and brought some flyers that we printed on the uh, school printers. And we started handing them out to, uh, to students. Uh, we just assumed that since we were students and wanted the service, then hopefully there are other students who also like the service. So we started spreading the word uh, by flyers. And uh, it worked. Um, I mean, it wasn't like an overnight success in any way, but uh, like after a few days, we saw that we had the first order from someone we didn't know. It wasn't one of our friends that we forced to order. Eventually, it, it picked up speed. Um, so, I mean, it, it, it was really uh, a very uh, simple approach to, <laughs> to how to get traction. You tell people about the service and you, then you, you sit around and wait and hope for them to order. When was this exactly? I'm just starting to think about the Facebook and the early days in the campus. It sounded like a sort of a bit of similar type of. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I wish I could compare ourselves to Facebook. Uh, thank you, Petri, for for bringing that up. But I'm not. 
Uh, I mean, of course, there are some similarities in terms of, of starting on a campus, but I think that that goes for a lot of different businesses worldwide that um, going to students is um, it's a usually less difficult path than trying to, uh, to access uh, another user base somewhere. Students are relatively easy to find because they go to campus every day. Um, they are usually slightly more open for trying new things. Uh, and especially if the product was developed by their peer students, then it's easier to convince at least a few of them to try. Um, so naturally, that was a, a good step for us to try. And, and uh, uh, it worked then. And it also turned out that later during the year, the student was a very important uh, customer group of ours. You, you had some uh, trouble, obviously, as well. So you were first uh, fully digital, even though you, I guess you needed to build quite a lot of things yourself. Uh, but then you started to do something uh, in a hardware space as well. Why was that? <laughs> oh, the hardware, yeah. Well, so what happened was that we, we started this in the city where we lived. Um, we could do everything digital. It kind of worked. It started growing. Uh, when we went back to school in August after the first summer, we um, didn't have much time to spend. Um, of course, we spent evenings and weekends, uh, but but that wasn't enough really to grow the business as fast as we wanted to. So we decided to spend the next summer, 2006, trying to expand to new cities. So we decided to um, go around to restaurants in other student cities um, with big campuses in Sweden and uh, try to convince them to join and then like copy what we did in Lynn Shopping. Uh, to start with restaurants and then go to campus and start handing out flyers. It totally failed. Um, I think we had like 100 or 150 meetings with restaurants that summer. Uh, and I think we signed one. Um, wow. We couldn't really figure out why it was so different from Linköping, but eventually understood that the restaurants felt it was too complicated uh, with them having to uh, get a computer, getting internet connection. And it was still 2006. It was like, at least in Sweden, it was rather uncommon um, with small businesses having their own internet connection at the time. So we had to help them getting a computer. We had to help them get an internet connection. And um, probably they didn't always want to tell us, but they thought it was perhaps too complicated and a little scary, to be honest. So we didn't always get the the true reason why they didn't want to join. But we eventually understood that the, the complicated internet setup was, was definitely part of it. So we realized that we have to find another way uh, to get the orders into the restaurants. We can't expect them to have a computer. And also for us, we learned from <laughs> Lean Shopping that uh, even if we help them get computer, then we end up at as uh, IT support uh, for the restaurants. And we get a call uh, Friday night when uh, someone working at a restaurant can play uh, a game at their Windows machine. So it wasn't like the ideal setup for us either. We wanted to be an online food ordering company, not the IT support company for restaurants. Uh, so we, we decided to try a few different ways uh, to get ordered into restaurants. We tried, I mean, obviously this was before smartphones. We couldn't just get a, a smartphone or an iPad or something. Uh, so we had to come up with something else. We tried uh, giving them a mobile phone so you can send text messages, but obviously text messages are very brief and it's hard to get a big order over text message. So it just led to um, uh, failed orders. We tried um, 
using a fax machine it sounds crazy today, but <laughs> honestly, that was that was like the best solution we had for quite a while. Uh, we helped we them get the fax that. machine. Yeah, we did, uh, and I don't remember how long it was used for, but especially in Germany, uh, where we la later made some business uh, through a partner. Um, I know that they used fax machines quite broadly uh, many years uh, after the release of iPhones. Uh, so fax machines, I mean, they're not that bad um, from our perspective. I mean, you can send a full, a full page or several pages. Um, it's easy to read. There's an automatic printout. Uh, so it's not, not just a digital message that someone at a restaurant has to put down on paper and, and, um, uh, and give to the kitchen. Um, you don't get uh, uh, like a full confirmation, of course, that someone at the restaurant actually read the, uh, the fax message you sent. But you do get a confirmation from the fax machine that it has received the message. So you somehow knew that probably they have received this message. Uh, Unless so they run out of paper. Um, exactly. So, I mean, there were some of those risks. And that was one of the reasons why we couldn't keep going with fax machines, because we couldn't really know uh, if they actually read it or not. Uh, and of course, for us, like one failed order was a disaster. We wanted it to be a 100% success rate in delivering the orders. Otherwise, we'd lose trust from the consumers. So what we did was to try to um, uh, sort of create our own fax machine that uh, corrected all the flaws with fax machines. So we didn't want it to um, uh, occupy the, the phone line when it was used. Uh, we wanted it to um, have some sort of bi-directional communication. So when the restaurant had received the message, they had to sort of push a button or something uh, and give a delivery time. So we could show that to the end user and give them confidence that the restaurant has really seen your order because they even said when it would be delivered. That was like the ideal step we wanted to reach. Um, and we couldn't find anything on the market. Um, so we were sort of thinking that, okay, so maybe it's not, it's not worth doing this. Maybe we're just too early. Um, we have to wait until something comes along. But we were still studying. We didn't really have that much else to spend our time on. Uh, we thought it was really fun, so we said, "Okay, why not? Why not? Why don't we try to instead of just closing down the business? Why don't we try to build something? Then we'll learn something, something more." I mean, we, the option wasn't really to just focus on running a digital business. The option was to stop running a business because we couldn't keep going the way we did. So this was like two years in. So this was autumn two thousand six, after our very failed sales summer. Uh, that was when we realized that we have to build something. Um, and then we uh, started Googling. Uh, luckily, Google was there, so we, we did get some support. We um, realized that there were different kinds of hardware components uh, we could put together, probably somehow. We, we just started ordering what we found online. And um, uh, in the end, after, after months of trying, we realized how 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 hardware works and how programming hardware works, and eventually we did create something that became a, a ordering terminal that we could put at restaurant. Um, they just plugged it into the uh, the socket, and we could send orders wirelessly to uh, the mobile network. It was basically a, a ordering terminal with a, a mobile uh, or a, mo a mobile modem inside using GPRS to transfer data. Uh, we put a SIM card inside. 
Uh, we put uh, a small speaker inside so we could let the restaurant know when there was an order. Um, we built in a, a receipt printer, a very small printer um, that could print uh, uh, the order for the restaurant uh, so they didn't have to type it on paper themselves. Uh, and we attached some buttons um, so they could reply and say that we will have a I don't know, 30 or 40 minutes delivery time today. Uh, and that totally changed the business for us. All of a sudden, from being those complicated dudes going to uh, restaurants and asking them to uh, to get engaged in internet and, and, and computers, we were the ones coming with one piece of hardware and saying, if you take this piece of hardware, you put it on your counter and you plug it in, uh, it won't occupy your phone line or anything, then you will just get more orders. And we only charge you per additional order you get. So that was um, a no-brainer for restaurants to try at least. Um, and that was sort of the turning point for us from being close to closing the business to realizing that, wow, this really works. Now it's just about scaling. Uh, that was a like, eureka moment for us. Until that point, at least, you were bootstrapping, so there was no external investors. True. So we, um, we invested ourselves um, about $8 every month, uh, the three founders. Uh, so we had $240 per month. That was our burn rate for the first three years, basically. Uh, then, of course, we started generating some revenue, so we could, we could use that as well. But you needed to build the hardware as well. Isn't that kind of expensive? Um, so the hardware, I mean, we saved for a few months. Uh, we saved those $240 for three months before we could order the components we needed uh, to build the first version. And then what we did was we didn't charge the restaurants uh the, the restaurant didn't have to buy the hardware from us they they could borrow it uh, but they had to leave a deposit so they left a deposit of don't remember exactly let's say 300 dollars but the hardware only cost us like 200 dollars to build um and of course we promised them that you can like any day you can call us and say i don't want to be part of this anymore uh, i want my money back and i'll i'll give the hardware back to you and that was, of course, the promise of restaurants. Uh, but of course, when we received the money from the restaurants, we used that to order more hardware so we could build for the next restaurants. And all of a sudden, we're in a situation that if, if like 10 or 15 of the restaurants uh, would call us at the same day and say, we want our money back, it wouldn't be possible because we used all that money to buy new hardware. So our bet was completely upon uh, being able to deliver value to the restaurants. Otherwise, we would fade from one day to the next. So from that perspective, okay, hardware, no, hardware wasn't that expensive. Uh, it was a few hundred dollars per, per piece, and we could finance it by uh, revenues or, in this case, deposits from, from the restaurants. But, I mean, you're definitely right that if we would have had more external money somehow, then we could have grown much faster because then we could have ordered much more hardware and we probably had lower prices on our hardware. But we didn't really need that because we were also limited by our own time. Uh, we were still studying. We couldn't spend all the time going around to restaurants selling. So we were anyway limited in how fast we could sell and, and scale up and add new restaurants to the system. And um, we couldn't spend the time we needed to do marketing anyway. So it, it was kind of okay for us to grow slowly. Um, of course, if we would have started a business like in today's climate, we would surely have had investments early on uh, from angels. And we would have probably quit our, our studies to to focus full-time much earlier than we did. But uh, for us, it worked okay. 
Um, so, so how how did you scale? How did you manage to get new new restaurant, new cities, and eventually you started to I think also do a bit of acquisitions and go to abroad as well. Yeah. So we um, the the first scaling in Sweden we did basically the way I already described in terms of ourselves going around to uh, to different cities, knocking at doors, uh, sleeping in the car, uh, eating free food at restaurants, um, still bootstrapping. Uh, that worked pretty well. And of course, after a while, um, our name, Online Pizza in Sweden, uh, became more well-known among restaurants and consumers, of course, but especially restaurants. So it then all of a sudden it started becoming possible to sell by phone as well. We didn't need to visit all restaurants uh, because they already understood how the concept worked because they read about it somewhere or, or they knew someone who used us. Uh, so then we started scaling little bit faster and that was about the time when we also realized that it can't, it can't just be the three of us founders so we started recruiting people uh, both in customer care uh, people helping us with like, entering all the the menus and, and delivery data into the system uh, and of course um, uh, sales people as well uh, so then we, we started scaling and of course, like when when you start scaling in in terms of employees, then also the business goes faster, and then we could scale even faster. And at some point, we uh, realized that okay, this is going really well in Sweden now. Uh, we should try to like focus on going international as well. And that was when we started looking into acquisitions and mergers uh, in other markets. Um, it's uh, it's a bit funny, but I I think. When you explain something in retrospect, it sounds like everything was so clear and strategic. But I think like most entrepreneurs know, um, it's it's never like that. You're being very opportunistic and you change your mind from, from week to week because you, you learn new things. And for us, like when we started international expansion, the plan wasn't really to do any mergers or acquisitions. The plan was just to... Uh, make a brief market analysis of all the countries uh, in Europe and close to Europe, uh, realize which countries are the best, and then we'll just launch in those countries. Sounds so simple. And of course, it wasn't so hard to make a market analysis and see where do we have um, e-commerce growing quickly? Uh, where do we have a card payment growing quickly? Um, but when you know which country is on top of the list, if I remember correctly, I think Greece was really high on the list for us. I think that was the like number one priority. Okay, so we know that we want to launch in Greece, but how do you do that? How do you launch in Greece? We can't just sit on our office in, in Sweden uh, and run a Greek business. We need to find local people. Okay, so how do you find a, you know, a country manager for Greece? If you don't have the network, uh, you've only been students living in Sweden, all of you, um, it's really hard. <laughs> do you put an ad on the job board somewhere saying, hey, we need a country manager for this online food ordering business? probably won't work, probably won't find the right people. Um, so what we realized after a while was that we have to think the other way around. We have to start looking for people in like any of the top 15 European markets on our list. Then when we find the right people, then we decide which countries to go to. And that was also what led us to doing uh, some acquisitions in other markets, because we realized that maybe the right people to run our business were people who had recently started building their own similar business because they, they sort of understood the business already. Uh, they believed in, in the, the market. 
but maybe they didn't have the resources to uh, to grow quickly, uh, and they most surely didn't have the hardware terminal that we had developed. So if we could um, invest in them or acquire them somehow, uh, they could use our technology, then it was just a win-win. Uh, so that was sort of how they ended up. But to be honest, it wasn't it wasn't planned. <laughs> we learned along the way. Do you remember what was the first uh, acquisition you did? How old was the company? What was your revenues and how many people you have sort of? How early you were? Um, I mean, in the end, we didn't do that many acquisitions. So what, what happened was um, the first international expansion we did was uh, to Poland, where we found a, a Swedish-Polish entrepreneur who um, we tried to convince for a while to uh, to run this business. The problem was he was living in Sweden at the time, and he had no interest going to Poland. We thought it was brilliant. You speak Polish, you have lived in Poland. It's of course, you go to Poland and you start this business. He didn't really understand why he would go to Poland. He was living in Sweden. <laughs> uh, we didn't really understand each other. But after, um, after a few months, maybe up to a year, uh, he got back to us and said, hey, um, I met a girlfriend. She lives in Poland. Uh, do you still want me to run a Polish business? And we were like, oh, okay, yeah, for sure. Let's do it. So that's how we started in Poland. But then we realized that this process was also quite complicated. You have to try to find the right people uh, and start from scratch. So after launching in Poland, we said that, okay, let's see if we can find acquisition targets instead. And the first one we did, to be honest, I'm not sure which country it was, uh, but it was either Finland or Austria, uh, because those were the two next markets where we uh, launched via uh, not not full scale acquisitions, but in first step as investments, and we later acquired those companies. Can you give some he- tips or hints uh, of experience for those who are thinking or maybe now starting to think about it? Hmm, maybe I should actually start to do acquisitions instead of building everything from scratch. Um, oh, that's a good good question. I think what we learned was that. Um, we were very happy that we didn't fully acquire the businesses because then that would mean so much more um, overhead for us at the headquarters. Uh, We would need to uh, uh, probably find new people to run the businesses if we would fully acquire them. We wanted the local entrepreneurs to have very strong incentives. We want them to still have the majority in the companies. Of course, we had a shareholders agreement, so we still had some vetoes and some control, but we want the entrepreneurs to have a huge financial upside. And we want them to feel that it's still their company. Um, just going in and acquiring something is, is uh, in my view, uh, very complicated, and you need a strong organization to be able to actually make use of that acquisition. There's a big risk that the business loses value if you don't take care of it properly after the acquisition. It usually looks better on paper than than in practice after acquisition. So that's something I would be careful about, really thinking, how will we run this business afterwards? There's a difference between if you run a business like ours, where you need long, strong local presence. Uh, in those cases, um, it's obvious that you need a strong local team. Uh, of course, there are other kinds of acquisitions where you don't really want the team. You're more looking for some assets. Uh, maybe you have a, um, a global business where you sell software online and then it doesn't really matter. Maybe you don't need a team. Maybe you just want to buy the customer list or the, uh, the IP. 
then of course it's different and it's more easy to incorporate that into your own uh, business, I would assume. It's also easy to start doing it prematurely. You need to understand your own business. You need to understand the market well before you start acquiring others. Otherwise, you won't know how to incorporate them in the best way. I think we were lucky in the way that we had spent several years bootstrapping ourselves, learning a lot uh, about how to run this business at the detailed level. We didn't acquire anything that we didn't understand. We understood completely exactly where they were, what they needed. We could look into their metrics and see that they should be able to improve that metric by 10%. Um, and we could also learn that they're really good at that metric and we could probably improve 5% on that metric. Um, if we would have had totally different businesses, but just sharing some sort of, of customer groups, then it would have been much more difficult. But since we acquired I, more or less identical businesses to, to ours, it was easy for us to understand. What was the process of convincing uh, other entrepreneurs to, to join forces? Because I would assume that quite a many of them have ideas that they're building their business and they don't need anyone else. And maybe they were not even thinking of anything along the lines of uh, joining forces. I think the key for us was this hardware box that we had and potentially that we could also invest some capital in the businesses because the acquisitions we made in Finland, Austria, they were still in the early days. It was before uh, the bigger startup, startup hype. It was still pretty hard to attract investors to that kind of business. For us, coming with the hardware box and showing them how it worked, showing that um, it really helped us scale in Sweden and Poland. Um, and of course, also being able to inject some capital in the business, I think that was very tempting. Um, I would guess that those entrepreneurs, uh, you should ask them, but I, I guess that those entrepreneurs uh, considered us to be a helping hand uh, along their journey of building their business. Sounded like you, you more like a hardware company than actually a direct competitor. Uh, on a global level, we're strong competitors. So if I would guess that if any of the entrepreneurs that we approach for, for acquisitions, if they would have a global target, then probably wasn't the best strategy to have us on board. Uh, but if they were more focused on building a strong local business uh, in their country and possibly neighboring countries, then us running a business in, in Sweden or Poland didn't matter. Uh, then it was just better for them to, to be part of something uh, something bigger where we could learn from each other and and um, use uh, money more efficiently. Was there some markets you wanted to enter, but you didn't find good acquisition targets or uh, cooperation partners, or you were just uh, flat out uh, maybe outed from the market by other competitors? Or? Um, I mean, when we did our market analysis, of course, we also based that partly on uh, how, how strong local competition was. Luckily for us, the competition was very weak in, in almost all markets. There were a few players that had popped up in, in a few markets, but it didn't really limit us that much. There were so many more uh, completely open markets to attack. I, I mentioned Greece, that that was one of the uh, countries very high on, up on our list, but where we just couldn't find the right team or entrepreneurs and we couldn't find anyone else who did it in Greece already. Uh, so that was a market that we like, would have liked to do. Um, but we couldn't at the time. After we had made acquisitions in Finland and Austria, we started looking for new markets, new bigger markets after that. Uh, we became market leaders in all our four markets, but we also felt that like, if we're going to take another market, it should be a much bigger market. 
started looking into, especially China and South Korea, uh, as possible next steps that would make a big difference for the company. Um, but of course, it's hard to find the right uh, the right team in those countries. We were a little more uh, mature ourselves as a team and, orga- uh, and an organization at the time. Uh, we're probably about 100 people uh, in our four countries. Um, and we had some better network and some more capital. So we, we had some more resources trying to find the right people. Um, but this was about at the same time as we started thinking about um, being acquired. It wasn't so much about us planning that. It was more about two other players on the market uh, being interested in acquiring us at the same time. Uh, so while we're thinking about either we we decline those acquisition offers and we uh, go all in on one new big market, um, or we start discussing with these uh, potential acquirers to see if uh, if this is a good timing for us to exit. So it wasn't it wasn't really planned, but we realized that having two uh, two of the the biggest players in the world in our space who wanted to acquire us at the same time put us in a very good negotiation position. Can you name those who were interested of it? Yeah, sure. So one was the the, the previous Danish company I mentioned, Just Eat, uh, which at that time was a UK company. Uh, they were the biggest ones in Europe at the time. And they had, uh, to make a long story short, they had also invested in us before, and they were in our board. So we were already somehow partners with them. They knew everything about our business almost. Uh, they, they felt that it's probably about time to acquire you by now before we grow too big for them. Um, and at the same time, we were also partners and we had made a small investment in German Delivery Hero when they started up in 2010. Um, so it was all, all the major players in Europe were really interconnected. It's quite complicated. Um, us investing in Just Eat's worst competitors while Just Eat was in our board that was complicated. What's the reason behind that? Was it sort of some kind of hedging or some, you know, keep your enemies closer type of thing? Yeah, I guess you could say that. From your seat perspective, investing in us, um, to be honest, uh, I don't think they, they would ever confirm it, but I think it was a way out for them initially when it first happened. Uh, because they had launched in Sweden in, in our early days. And we were fighting head to head with them in southern Sweden especially. They were running some of their operations from Denmark. Uh, we were running it from, from Stockholm and Linköping at the time. Uh, so we were really fighting hard with them. They had all the capital they needed. They were well-funded at the time. Uh, they had experience. Um, they also had a hardware solution quite similar to ours, uh, but they didn't have the, a strong Swedish team. So they tried to do it uh, mostly from, from Denmark. We were uh, fighting that big giant um, with like energy, passion, and uh, and uh, trying to innovate all the time. And in the end, I would say that it was too hard for them to succeed in Sweden because they, they didn't find the right team. Um, and they had to somehow explain to the world and to their shareholders uh, what happened in Sweden. I think they couldn't really say that we just failed. We lost to th- these three students who didn't have any money, any experience, or time. Uh, so they had to find a way out, and their way out was to accept to invest in us because we really need the capital capital at that time to go international. So we accepted investments uh, that we accepted their investment, 
uh, and they sort of got a strategic uh, stake in in our business. Um, and then when Deliver here start, decided to start up slightly later in in Berlin, um, we knew the team uh, from before, and and um, they sort of learned a bit from us about how to run the business. Uh, and we really we, we strongly believe that this team will be able to. Uh, to build something uh, big. They had a slightly different strategy to ours. They really had a, a land grab strategy, growing as quickly as possible, raising a lot of money, which wasn't very suitable for uh, us. We were much more focused on building strong presence, becoming market leaders, uh, driving revenue, uh, reaching profitability. So we had quite different ways of running businesses. But we realized that they would probably succeed with their strategy. So then we thought it was better to keep them close. Uh, so we did a symbolic tiny investment in them, uh, partly so they could show to other investors that these online pizza guys, they believe in us. Uh, they have even invested in us, even though we would eventually somehow globally become competitors. So I think it really helped them. Uh, we also licensed our hardware to them uh, so they could sort of get going quickly when they launched. And of course, this was a complicated thing with, with uh, having Just Eat uh, on board because Just Eat also had partly a land grab strategy. So they would become more direct competitors with uh, Deliver Hero. How do you navigate all that? You, you obviously have some information you don't want to share with everyone and you know, everybody's <laughs> competing with each other and then you're just <laughs> all in the, in the sort of same you know, board meetings maybe. Yeah. Um, how do you navigate that? It's, um, it's it, I, I think it, Maybe it sounds more complicated when you describe it later because now it sounds like everything was so chaotic. But of course, at the time, and this was spread out over a couple of years. Uh, so we had a lot of time trying to understand what are the incentives of everyone? Uh, how are we working with everyone? What do we have to share? Uh, what are we legally obliged to share to a board member? Um, so so in the end, I would say that, of course, it was, it was sort of complicated, but... Um, I think it was probably slightly less complicated for us uh, than for Just Eat and Delivery Hero because we were so different in our approach to uh, uh, to scaling. Um, since we focus so much on our core markets and being very, very strong footholds on those markets. Um, and Just Eat and Delivery Hero were more direct competitors. So, I mean, of course, for us having a competitor as shareholders and board members, um, I mean, it pushed us to really understand what does our shareholders agreement say? How can we adapt our shareholders agreement so we don't end up in a trap somewhere? But in the end, of course, I mean, it's it's business, it's about relationships in the end. And of course, we could have a shareholders agreement, but in the end, we had to make sure that uh, no one felt that uh, we were being hostile to them. Um, and that's about building relationships. And I think that's, um, that's something you, you must never forget, even if you end up in, in legal discussions that in the end, the, the agreements are usually just a reflection of uh, what you have anyway agreed upon. And the handshake is uh, sometimes more important than, uh, than what it actually says on paper. When you wake up one Sunday morning and you want to ex uh, exit your business, what's the button to push? I guess there's no pizza online box where you say that I want to exit now, please. Can you confirm? <laughs> no, but the truth is we didn't really want to exit. Um, I mean, it wasn't that we didn't want to, but um, we were definitely not looking for an exit at the time. We we had probably realized by then that at some point in time, uh, we will make an exit. 
we are probably not the ones who will run this to a huge IPO uh, and be global leaders. We'll probably make an exit someday. We already had a few acquisition offers um, that we declined naturally. Um, so we had mentally accepted that at some point in time we would probably be acquired. But we also felt that we'd probably need to do this for a few more years before uh, we will be in that position. But I think that what happened was that Delivery Hero um, had just like raised even more money uh, and decided to uh, grow very quickly using M&A. They didn't want to start from scratch because it was too slow. Um, so they wanted to do M&A uh, in lots of markets at the same time. And their, their storytelling to their investors and to the market was that uh, they were very early in uh, a few huge markets. They were early in China. They were early in South Korea. Uh, they were sort of had come some way in Germany and a few other European markets. But they also needed to show that they could be really profitable at some markets. So they could tell the story that look, we're having we're having these really profitable businesses in in country X Y Z, and then we have these other huge markets following the same trajectory. And in a few years, they will eventually be at the same profitable level and then will be super valuable. They wanted to sell that story, but then they needed the really profitable countries, which they didn't. And so of course they looked around and see who are having some really profitable countries with nice margins. And to be honest, we were the only ones that, that um, re even remotely could be acquired. Uh, so they started looking at our countries, especially uh, Sweden and uh, Finland that were the, the most profitable countries. And realize that if they could tell their story and show that Sweden, Finland uh, have these nice margins, then fundraising would be so much easier for them. Uh, they would also generate some revenues. So they didn't need to do as much fundraising. So I think that was the sort of the rationale why they more or less suddenly realized that we should acquire online pizza, the group of countries. Did you realize at the time that you have leverage? Basically, you were the only one. So, you know, you, you had that position when starting to go to the valuation and prices. We, uh, we realized that uh, it was probably important for them, yes. Uh, but I think even more, uh, what was important for us in terms of leverage was that um, we had just eat as shareholders. We had a shareholders agreement that said that all shareholders have a right to first refusal, uh, which means that if, if um, the other shareholders want to sell their shares to someone, then the existing shareholders uh, have uh, the first opportunity to to buy those shares at the same terms as the third party offered uh, to acquire the shares for, which basically means that if we want to sell the company to Deliver Hero, then just it could say, okay, uh, but we'll do it instead on the same terms that Deliver Hero offered you. This meant that we had we we could convince Deliver Hero that if you're going to make an offer on us, then there is no point doing it for. Uh, sort of a, a valuation that is is rather low because then just eat will just say great we'll take it uh, and then we would be legally obliged to sell to just eat so we wouldn't have an option then so there's no point for delivery doing it unless they could could uh, uh, put a valuation at a number that they thought that just eat wouldn't accept because that's the only way for delivery to be able to acquire us at all and they only had one shot uh, and if they missed, if they put a too low number, then just it would just acquire it and they would lose the deal. And that would be the worst possible scenario for 
uh, for Deliver Hero. They would be just eat acquiring us. That sounds so beautiful. After <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it it was beautiful. So I mean, that's that's one of the few things I'd say. It's it's not. Uh, it doesn't sound uh, much better afterwards than it, than it was at that time because it it was. I mean, we were obviously in a very nice spot at that time. Um, so we we were lucky uh, in 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 that. I mean, of course, we built a business that was sustainable and profitable, and we were not in a rush. So of course, that put us in a good position as well. But the the specific timing of uh, delivery or being afraid of just eat acquiring us and delivery or needing us to show uh, to tell their story. I mean that that was luck. Uh, so we could basically, without telling us eat, we could uh, negotiate with Deliver Hero and push them to uh, put a number uh, that uh, sort of we together thought might be too expensive for just eat. It turned out that just eat didn't think it was expensive enough. So just eat said. Uh, I mean, eventually we received offer from Deliver Heroes, and then we had to go to Yasit and say, "Hey, okay, now we received this acquisition offer from Deliver Hero. Uh, do you want to take it?" Then Yasit started thinking for a few days, and then he said, "Yes, we definitely want to take it." And then we thought, "Shit, <laughs> we put the too low number." <laughs> not, not, not that it matters so much to us who would acquire us. That wasn't the big thing. It was more like we realized that okay, we probably could have pushed this number higher. But then it was too late for negotiations. We had that number on paper. We told Yasti that we had received this offer, which meant that according to our shareholders' agreement, we had to so we had to sell to Yasti at the same terms if they accepted it. That was the right. And they said, we take it. That gave them 60 days to complete uh, a due diligence and to negotiate final purchase agreements with us. The offer from the liver was more like a term sheet saying that these are the headline terms. It's this valuation, which would complete uh, in this time, um, and some other major, like how is it paid, uh, and so on. But it didn't include like all the specific details on warranties and uh, and all that that you put in the share purchase agreement. So you still had to spend some time doing, doing the final due diligence before the board would, would decide if they really wanted to acquire us or not, and uh, negotiate the agreements with us. Just it were in a uh, slightly difficult position at the time because they were just planning their own IPO, which meant that everything they did, especially big deals, had to be uh, formally 100% uh, correct and compliant in every way. They couldn't take the risk of like missing something in a due diligence that close to the IPO turned out to be a disaster uh, because that could ruin their own IPO. So they had to do a, f- a full, uh, complete due diligence of us, even though we were still quite a small company. It was quite a small deal. I think it was uh, it was a fifty-five million dollar deal. So it it wasn't huge, but it was big enough for for them to uh, like having to do a proper DD. Um, that took a lot of time. Uh, I mean, we were quite an unorganized company at the time. We had businesses in four countries. We had about a hundred employees. Um, we had never had a, like a big formal investment from any VC before, so we didn't we hadn't went through a proper DD process. We didn't have our papers in order, uh, so it took a lot of time for us and for them trying to uh, finalize the DD. Um, eventually, they did complete the DD, but um, uh, there were still, of course, some question marks they, that they didn't have time to dive into. There was like some question about. 
VAT levels in Austria, if I remember correctly, was like one of those things um, that they didn't have time to figure out. So in the end, they said, after this, after 59 days, they said, okay, we need three more days. Uh, we need to figure this out. We can't sign the papers uh, until we, we figure this out. But we're, we're confident that we will, but we need to have it on paper before we sign. And we said, okay, but you know, you have 60 days to sign the papers. We are ready. Uh, just call us in the evening on day 60 and we will just sign the papers. Um, but eventually they never called. Uh, they said that it needed one or two more days. Of course, Deliver here knew this. So we um, um, we sent to Deliver here that, okay, now 60 days has, has passed. Uh, it's it's 1 a.m. in the night. Uh, we haven't had any phone calls from Yesdi. So now we're, we're up for grabs. Uh, then Deliver here flew in. Uh, their management team from Berlin to Stockholm. We met 9 a.m. in the morning. Started. They started doing their, their DD uh, in parallel uh, with um, negotiating the, the final share purchase agreement. Uh, so we had parallel tracks at the lawyer's office. Um, it took some time, but uh, I mean, compared to yesterday, it's 60 plus days. Uh, after 21 hours, 6 a.m. the next morning, um, they were happy enough with what they found in the DD and uh, with the share purchase agreement. And then they signed the papers. Um, so they, by being super quick and entrepreneurial, and of course, to some extent, being willing to take some more risk uh, because they couldn't like finalize all the legal DD, uh, they decided they trusted us. Uh, they'd worked with us for a while, uh, not as long as just eat, but, but still long enough for them to understand that you know, this is a good business. Uh, they could compare our metrics to their metrics. Uh, they didn't care so much about the legal details, more about the commercial details. Uh, yes, they were much more focused on the, uh, the legal aspects of things, not so much on the commercial. Uh, so they were just much quicker understanding that like, even if there would be some legal trouble somewhere, it doesn't matter so, so much to us. Did you manage to do something with the price? No, we couldn't. I mean, we're not allowed to. Um, so... Um, I mean, that's how the right to first refusal works. So we received the first offer from uh, from Deliver Hero, and then we had to show that to uh, to Yes Eat. Um, so we couldn't negotiate the price with Yes Eat because we just had to show them what we had already uh, accepted. Uh, then after those 60 days, then if we would change anything in the terms, then we would have to go back to Yes Eat again and say, okay, so now we have received this new offer. Now we have 60 more days. Uh, so we, asked, we had to do everything on the same terms, not to lose the deal. So unfortunately, we couldn't leverage that, but uh, we could instead leverage to uh, leverage the situation with Deliver Hero to uh, push them into having a very friendly uh, share purchase agreement, uh, because those details were not in the offer, the initial offer that we showed to So there were still some details to negotiate about, and we could get those very seller friendly. Um, like we would still have, um, they didn't have to pay everything upfront because they didn't have the money. Uh, they paid some upfront, and then they paid some things like a year later, and then we could have like our whole company as collateral. So if they wouldn't pay, we'd just get get the company back, um, and we didn't have a long lock-in. We had six months lock-in, um, which is quite short in that kind of business where the founders are still expected to to run and grow the business for a long time. So we could negotiate some of those things, to, but not the price. Uh, so we ended up at at fifty five million, which compared to today's numbers is ridiculously low. Uh, but given where we were and where the state of the ecosystem, startup ecosystem was at that time, it was quite a lot, especially for us three founders who still uh, own the majority of the company. 
you went to school uh, in the university when you started, and was this your first job? And then you exited with quite nice number from there. Yeah, it was. Um, so we started in university, and to be honest, I mean, I like to stress this: that starting a company um, while you are studying is probably the best time in your life when you can start a company because you you don't take a lot of risk, a lot of personal risk. Um, in Sweden, at least, you can live decently on. Uh, what you can get in from in terms of grants and loan for being a student. Um, so we didn't need more income. We could take uh, $80 per month and invest in a company instead. Uh, so that's that's a really good time. And, and if it fails, you just, okay, that's it. And you go back to focusing on your, your studies or start something new. So you don't take a lot of risk. Um, so we did, we did start uh, doing the studies. That was the first attempt. Um, I had been involved in, in other projects before, but nothing related to, to starting a business. Um, and I had met my co-founders at the university while we were like active in, in student organizations. So we, had, we hadn't built a, a commercial business before, but we had worked on, on projects before, so we, we knew each other. What happened after that? Again, a Sunday, but now you have a bit more money in the bank account and probably <laughs> nothing to do. Um, yeah, but, I mean, it's... <laughs> Yes, so I had I had money on the bank account, but still, that money was never the the, the primary driver for running a business. Uh, it, it sounds like a cliche, possibly, and of course, I mean, I'm I'm very well aware that money makes uh, things so much easier, but um, uh, it doesn't change so much in your passion and your your day to day activities. Uh, I still wanted to see things grow. I still wanted to learn. I'm a curious person. I couldn't just sit around and and uh, like try to live off interest, right? That's that's. I mean, I would be depressed by doing that. So I mean, from that perspective, it doesn't change so much. Um, and I stayed. I mean, I, I mentioned that we had six months lock in from the buyer, but uh, I stayed for almost one and a half years uh, in the business, trying to recruit new people to replace me and my co-founders, and making sure that those people um, learned the business before I left. Uh, the business was still my baby. Um, I didn't want to leave. So I had a gradual uh, phase out from the business. And But I eventually, of course, I started thinking about what to do next. Should I start a new business? Uh, in that case, what business? Uh, I made a list of, of different potential businesses that I wanted to start. But I also realized that I shouldn't just jump the gun and, and start something uh, immediately. I should spend some time learning about the different markets, the different business models that I was curious on. Uh, and possibly uh, like learn from from other entrepreneurs who had different experiences uh, than I had. So I started uh, reaching out to entrepreneurs, uh, asking them to to tell me everything they knew about their market and their um, their business models, uh, and learn from their backgrounds. Of course, they started asking, "Why should I spend my time doing that?" Um, so that that strategy didn't work. But then I realized, "But if I st- if I if I invest money, what do you do then?" So then I became an angel investor. Um, offering offering money uh, basically to learn from that perspective is probably more for the money but um, but still that that worked so I became an angel investor to learn um, while figuring out what is the next big step for me um, what is my next business how many companies you been investing um, by now um, about 50 I'd say to be honest I, I don't know the exact number Um It's about 50. So like 50 lessons to learn. Yeah. I mean, I 
I mean, <laughs> you never learn everything you, you want to learn. <laughs> but um, what, what I did realize was that um, it's so much fun uh, doing investments because of all the learning you do. I started doing investment in 2013, a uh, year after our exit. And um, I did realize that um, I enjoyed doing investments so much that um, six years later, uh, I was still looking for the next thing uh, to do myself. I had to confess to myself that I'm, I'm, at least right now in this phase in life, I'm probably not going to start uh, a new business. I'm probably going to spend more time on many different businesses. It was just a model that attracted me uh, slightly more than, than starting my own business at the time. So at that time, I didn't have 50 investments, um, but I did realize that I have to do something, um, something more focused. Uh, so then I started looking at a few different side projects where I could spend some more time myself. And I started thinking about not only investing generally in, uh, in software that was my only focus at the time, but trying to be more niched somehow because I, then I could learn uh, more about the one or a few spaces that uh, interested me even more. What are your experiences and lessons learned from being an angel investor. I understood that you were also learning that process by doing and having different stages and steps and different approaches also to the investing. Yeah, it's um, a good question. What I learned, I mean, you learn, <laughs> I, spent, I did this for so many years, so I learned so much. It's maybe hard to tell what was the learning from actually doing the angel investments and what was the learning from life itself. But um, um, one thing that's become more and more obvious to me is that uh, I think all investors think that um, later stage investors, they, they lack conviction. Uh, yourself, you see that, okay, this is, this is the future. This is, uh, this is going to happen in a few years. So I have to invest now. And then when it's time for them to raise the ne- next round, you think that later stage investors, they, they, they don't have the conviction. But also, you always think that the earlier stage investors, they are shooting from the hip. I think this is true for every stage in investing. You can ask a Series B investor, and they will think that Series A investor is shooting from the hip. And Series C investors, uh, they they lack conviction. That that's one thing. It's so easy to like convince yourself that at the stage you're at, if you're investing at seed or or A rounds, uh, it's so easy to convince yourself that this is uh, this is the next big thing, and I'm, I want to be part of this uh, this high potential journey, even though it's high risk. Um, but then when you look at it uh, a year later, when it's time to raise the next round, then uh, others don't think at all that it's, it's that obvious as this is the next big thing or that this company is the ones who are, who are going to solve it. I learned a little bit about uh, like not getting too, falling too much in love with, uh, with a product or an idea or one potential or, or one team, uh, but trying to be a little more realistic about what will the next round of investors think? How will they determine if this is uh, a proper uh, Series A investment for them or not? So how do you evaluate now new startups if you're thinking of investing on them? And you know, this is also maybe advice for those who want to approach you, that what is important? I have learned more and more that even if it's a cliche, it's true that uh, the team is super, super important. I, I spend more and more time trying to figure out uh, how the co-founders work together, uh, what the relevant experience is, um, have they run a startup before? That can be quite important. How are they at recruiting people? 
Um, how are they at pitching to investors? Because I realized that most of the companies I invest in, they will definitely need to raise quite, uh, quite a few more rounds. So they need to be good at pitching to later stage investors as well. Um, I think initially I was more focused on the product and the solution um, and, and the product market fit. Uh, but I have come to realize that um, teams are, are really, really important. So that's definitely one advice to early stage founders think about sort of the completeness of the team. Maybe you need a third co-founder um, who has more experience from something that you're lacking. Uh, if you're a, a deep tech company, of course, you need strong um, scientific expertise somehow or technical expertise in the business. Uh, but you will always need uh, that sort of startup slash commercial experience as well. Uh, by that, I don't mean someone who has worked with, with selling stuff before, uh, because sometimes I feel that um, technical uh, co-founders think of, of commercial as, as, as one one thing and assuming that everyone is good at selling, they, they're good at everything related to commercialization and raising money and recruiting. But it's really different things. So um, understanding how to run a business uh, is not the same thing as, as uh, being a commercial co-founder. You have to understand how to recruit people, um, how to maintain them, um, how to pitch to investors, there's lots of things related to operations as well that, that might also be, I mean, someone, someone in the team has to like doing the operations. Um, there are so many different aspects, but of course, it all depends a lot on, on what kind of business you're running. But really think about the completeness of the team uh, and think about the, the, the skills that you're lacking. Uh, are they so crucial to the business that uh, there should be co-founder with this skill or is it enough to recruit someone who has more of a, um, a senior role in the company with this skill? Or could it be an advisor even? Um, it's not always uh, clear to me um, how much uh, of that skill you need on a daily basis and, and how much could be as an advisor. But I think you as a co-founder should probably understand it better. So that, that's one advice, focus on the team. With 50 companies, there must be so many stories, a lot of trauma, a lot of successes and failures. You want to share some of that? <laughs> there are um, quite a lot of failures, uh, for sure. Some of the worst ones, I, I'm not sure the entrepreneurs want me to, uh, to speak too openly about it. Maybe if you can do it anonymously, the point is here to learn and not repeat the mistakes. And if you can sort of pick the wisdom from there. I could definitely do it on an aggregated level because I've seen enough of them, I think. Um, a very, very common mistake is to be way too focused on um, the product itself um, and not being enough focused on the value that you're actually creating for the customer and understanding the customer needs. Um, I mean, I understand this is something that's has been repeated quite a few times, but uh, I mean, I have to stress it again. I've seen it so many times in my own companies. Uh, and I guess that goes partly back to myself that I've been too focused also on the investing in teams that have a good uh, good product. Uh, maybe I myself haven't understood that the market need enough. So I'm definitely not saying that it's the, the fault of entrepreneurs only, it's also the investors. Um, but that's a very, very common thing. I've been pretty lucky in not seeing too many like co-founder dramas. Um, but I know that there are, I mean, I have a few of those in my portfolio and uh, uh, there are quite some investor friends of mine who have more. Um, but I guess my focus on the team especially on the, the last few years, has um, 
hopefully led me into companies where the co-founder team is, is more stable. You've been doing good as well. There's been some initiatives. Uh, I understood you've been trying to help free someone from uh, prison and you've been also pledging a bit of uh, your money to other courses. Yeah, I mean, I, I, um, that was actually how I got to know my co-founders for online pizza uh, in Italy, uh, that we were both active in the campaign for uh, a Swedish citizen who was a journalist. Um, who He was born in Eritrea. Uh, but lived in Sweden, was a Swedish uh, citizen, but then he re- returned to Eritrea to uh, help start a newspaper there. Um, but then um, um, just a few a few days or a week after 9-11, uh, 2001, uh, the president in Eritrea decided to become a dictator. So he closed all, all media, uh, imprisoned all the journalists um, and uh, opposition politicians. And uh, almost all of them have been in jail since then. So that's almost 20 years ago now. And uh, this journalist, David Isaac, he is uh, he's still imprisoned. Uh, there are, are quite some signs that he's, he's uh, one of the few people who are still alive uh, in the Eritrean prisons. Um, and uh, at the time when we started working on or under learning about this case um, in 2004, uh, he was, and maybe still is, uh, the only European citizen that Amnesty adopted as a prisoner of conscience. Um, there might be a few more now, but um, so, he, so from that perspective, that the case was quite unique uh, and should have received a lot of attention. And what we realized was that we didn't know about this case. This was about three years after he was imprisoned, uh, which we thought was weird. But if there is a Swedish citizen and journalist imprisoned without a trial, for three years, why don't we read about that every day? Why don't we hear politicians talk about it? Why isn't that a big thing for Swedish government or European Union? Um, and we managed to learn that people didn't know about it. So we spent some time uh, trying to uh, inform people about this. Uh, started working with his brother who lived in Gothenburg, um, trying to uh, spread the word about it and uh, get media attention, get politicians to act. After about a year of doing that, uh, luckily, the major newspapers started picking it up. And um, um, there were there were other freedom of press organizations in Sweden that picked it up and, and started running the campaigns. Um, but that was how, how we got to know my co-founders uh, in Italy. So we had worked together on that, uh, also bootstrapping uh, as, as students. Um, so that was one of the things that uh, sort of has has um, learn, learning about how politics works uh, by being not involved in politics directly, but trying to affect politicians to run things and understanding why hasn't media been writing about this? Well, because he is black and it's a country far away from, from Sweden. That was the honest truth that we heard from, from the major newspapers in Sweden, why they didn't focus on this case. Um, if it would have a Swedish name, um, uh, white skin and it would have been in, a, in Russia, then uh, we're pretty sure that, that he would be top of the agenda every day. It was kind of depressing to learn about how reality works, uh, naive students as, as us were at the time. Um, but at least it, it led to uh, uh, EU and the Swedish government actually engaging in it. Uh, from, from one perspective, it's still a failure because he's, he's, he's imprisoned. Uh, but from our perspective, the most important thing was to get bigger organizations with more uh, better networks and, and, and more money and political power to, uh, to start running the campaign instead of us. 
we couldn't do that much we felt at the time yeah. and of course it led to us starting a business so that, that was also something good that came up from it and that leads us to the founder splits does it basically now we have sort of close to loop how do you say your first <laughs> business and went to the oh, angel investing as well but you know so you have to now do something with the money and you you, you have pledged something founders pledge is an organization that approached me um a few years after they were started so founders pledge is um it's an organization that helps founders and investors to do good um even before they have liquidity uh, which sounds weird but they do it in the shape of a pledge where you as a founder promise uh, and you're legally bound to by signing a pledge agreement you promise to when you have an exit works for investors as well when you have an exit from from your portfolio then you promise to invest uh, a certain percentage that you decide um, of your exit proceeds uh, to charity uh, you you decide yourself to what charities you decide yourself how much i think there's a minimum threshold of a, a few percent um, but you can do anything from a few percent up to 100 if you want to it's up to you um, and by signing that pledge you become a part of the founders pledge community uh, consisting of all other founders uh, and and, uh, and investors who uh, also care about uh, philanthropy and doing good so i mean at the basic level it's a, it's a pledge but uh, it's really more about uh, uh, building the community and you meeting other people and you also get to meet like very early stage uh, charities who have um, like good traction but still early days and maybe you as a philanthropist want to support them uh, in the early days so, so they could uh, show and get metrics that that what they're doing is is um, is really effective and the way founders pledge work is that when it's time to donate, they have their own research team. They're also working with external research team on trying to figure out which are the best charities that you can donate to, uh, given your own criteria. So they, they're very um, much experts in uh, understanding the charity landscape and how to convert one donated dollar into real value for the world. And that basically follows the effective altruism uh, idea uh, of trying to do as much good as possible for for a, a certain input and i've been i've been supporting them since um, since i heard of them um, and trying to help them sort of get going in in the nordics uh, especially in sweden um, i i can really recommend them um, i mean this sounds like a sale pitch but uh, i think it's <laughs> it's worth it it's worth it because they're, they're really that good uh, and expiring I think it is a sales pitch. Uh, there's also the, uh, the counter argument, uh, just to take another point of view. Uh, so you're saying that you cannot allocate the money better and do more good with doing it by yourself, maybe investing to some startup company. So you just take the portfolio view. It's a good question because it's really one a big debate in effective altruism. Uh, and I found this pressure working a lot of this as we speak on how how to balance between doing long-term investments growing the capital and donating later compared to donating to the best charities today um, and that that mathematical model uh, how to model the value of doing investments today is quite hard um, there are strong indications that uh, at least some of the money should be invested long term not so much because we expect that the value of the money will grow so much faster than the value that's created by donating today. 
but rather that we learn so much every year from how to use the money, the donated money, uh, into creating value. The effective altruism uh, movement is, is still uh, very young and um, uh, learning a lot every year. And we expect that like in, in 10 years, maybe we're twice as good at converting uh, donated dollars into uh, into value. That, that's a strong reason why it might be good to uh, invest instead of donating today. Um, but um, also the research on this topic is definitely far from uh, from clear yet, and it, it's still going on. So it's kind of hard to know um, at this point. Uh, I'm doing both, obviously. Uh, I'm not investing only to donate everything later, but I'm also uh, investing to learn and to um, uh, to have a lot of fun while doing it. So I try to balance between the uh, doing the investments and uh, and donating as well. Uh, but it's hard. It's a hard question, uh, and it will definitely be up for debate for for many years ahead. We might still not come to a a strict conclusion on, on what is best. What is what is clear though is that if everyone would only invest their money and there would be no donations to creating value today, that would not be good. Um, but there is a, a strong reason to believe that uh, investing some of the money um, could probably lead to even higher uh, value creation in uh, 10 or 20 years. You've been also doing something for three Uh, startup community by means of uh, documents, startup tools. What was the reason behind and can you explain briefly what it's about? Right, so that was one of the learnings when I started doing my own angel investments back in 2013. Uh, I realized that when I was about to invest in a company, uh, I couldn't figure out myself what are decent terms to invest on. Uh, And it didn't seem like anyone else knew either. Um, I started asking around a lot, what are normal terms in the seed round in Sweden? Uh, and I got a lot of different answers. Um, so I started more or less crowdsourcing uh, different term sheets from seed rounds and realized that there were a few a few terms that um, existed in all the term sheets. And there were a few ones that were sort of very odd uh, compared to the other term sheets. So I summarized this, uh, picked everything that seemed to be more or less common Uh, and said that, okay, now I have my own term sheet. This is a normal term sheet. It's not founder-friendly, uh, it's not investor-friendly, but it's balanced. So it's basically both investor and founder-friendly in that sense. Um, I started using that, but realized very quickly that, okay, now I crowdsource this. Why don't I, I share this with others so others can use it as well? I put it online and um, uh, it gained some traction. Uh, and it led me very quickly to understand that it's not enough to only have term sheet, you also want the investment agreement and the shareholders agreement that correspond to uh, the headline terms in the term sheet. So I started working with a lawyer in Sweden uh, to develop these agreements, uh, put them online, started receiving even more traction and uh, more questions about other kinds of documents. Entrepreneurs wanted um, employment agreements and agreements for for stock options and NDAs, uh, convertibles. Um, so I realized that okay, I should probably spend some time working with uh, lawyers to create these uh, standardized, balanced templates uh, and put them online. Um, so I spent some time doing that, and um, uh, it's all for free. Um, Uh, the lawyers are working for free in exchange for uh, exposure in the documents. Uh, so they basically get get leads from 
companies who, who want help with the documents. Um, and it started in Sweden, but now it's also in, in the rest of the Nordics. Um, so the latest launch was in, uh, in Finland in December together with the series seed.fi. Um, and um, I now have some plans to grow this into uh, uh, a sustainable business. Today, it's, it's fully supported by my personal money that, that goes into a project to pay for everything. But um, I think like like most charities, um, many of them would be, um, would be better off if uh, they also had some sort of, of revenue model. So it would at least be sustainable and not dependent on too much donations. That's that's the plan for starter tools to try to um, um, keep it going to make sure that you can keep delivering like balanced standardized documents for uh, at least the Nordic Nordic startup ecosystem, but hopefully more in Europe as well. I think one of the exceptional things when I first uh, some years back learned about uh, startup tools was that you were also checking the taxation, which is not usually the case. Lawyers are so good with uh, with the legal stuff, but they don't want to bother with uh, taxation, and that's very important in the Scandinavian Nordics because of the high taxation. And sometimes the the laws are not exactly on the side of the founder when you're doing exits or you do some kind of transactions and uh, giving incentives for employees as well. Uh, that you may have some consequences in the taxation perspective, and those may not be reflected in the contracts. So this is something that's that's bothered me for a while that. Uh, lawyers tend to be experts in one field. Um, so either you're in a tax, you're, you're a tax expert, and then you only know tax, but you don't. You're usually not that good at uh, like understanding a startup journey and understanding how to adapt contracts to to them. You only know the tax rules, or uh, you're expert in something else, um, but you don't know tax. Um, so that that makes it difficult for founders who might not be able to afford having several different lawyers coming in and working on. Uh, on helping them uh, but as an entrepreneur when you've been through some of that then at least you you learn um, where, where is it important to think about the tax consequences i could then sort of support entrepreneurs via starter tools by uh, having tax experts taking a look at at uh, a few specific areas where i know that it's it can be tricky for founders uh, especially when it comes to uh, taxations for receiving value from the company either in terms of like options or uh, founders with vesting and so on that are um, traditionally more um, uh, risky areas uh, than, for example, a sales agreement or an NDA. Where is Trellis Road? Trellis Road is uh, <laughs> a good question. Where is it? Uh, it's um, it's a place in the future where um, we uh, have. Oh, sorry. I can't explain that one. Sorry, I have to cut this away. <laughs> no, I think we're gonna put it in. You know, this is so sweet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Where is Trellis Road? I love that question. What is Trellis Road? Uh, Trellis Road is um, the company that I started with uh, my now co-founder Anna Ottoson. Uh, she was running a company that I invested in myself before. Uh, they were doing a, a sort of deep tech B two B solution for distribution of data in the internet. So very different from. Uh, food tech that we are now focusing on. Pizza again. Um, pizza is food, um, but pizza is not that much food tech. Uh, online delivery is food tech, uh, but we focus on uh, the impact aspects. Uh, we started talking like, more than a year ago about doing something together. Uh, yet again, I thought that maybe I'm about to start my own company again, uh, a, a real startup. 
um, but realized that uh, it probably wasn't the right timing um, for many different reasons. But, um, we started talking about doing something together, uh, and we had both been through sort of starting a company, exiting a company, uh, started thinking about what to do next. So we're uh, in similar personal uh, situation as well. I had just had my first baby uh, and was about to have our first baby. Uh, so we both had started thinking more about uh, our legacy as well to the next generation. Um, and uh, we just concluded that we have to work on something that really uh, reasons with us that that um, uh, aligns with our passions um, sounds like a cliche but uh, like when you are in the luxury situation that, that we both were uh, not being dependent on a daytime job you, know, you really have the luxury to start thinking about what what is my passion we both concluded that sort of we, we want to feel that we help improving the world somehow uh, as a combination of impact but also uh, startups uh, we know both worlds, and uh, we see that there's a it's a huge overlap that I think traditionally has been a bit neglected. Uh, the overlap between high impact and high profitability. Uh, I think uh, five to ten years ago, um, investors at least thought that you had to choose between uh, impact and profitability. But I think it has been obvious that it's definitely possible to build huge businesses um, that combine the both, where one unit of um, economic growth in the company uh, also generates one more unit of impact. Uh, I mean, looking at the food industry that we decided to focus on, uh, you have like Swedish Oatly, for example, that replacing milk with, with oat drinks uh, been growing tremendously and aiming at 10 billion IPO now in May, I think. Uh, you have Beyond Meat with the plant-based uh, uh, burger replacements. Um, who did an IPO uh, in US. Uh, so there are some, some of those cases that are now went all the way to an IPO and there are much more coming. Uh, so we definitely see that this is a great area for uh, entrepreneurs and early stage investors to focus on. Uh, we also looked into a few different areas before deciding on food tech. We look at the energy sector, for example, but realized very quickly that uh, to make a, a big dent in, in the energy sector, you need a lot of money. Um, it's quite dependent on big corporates and it's quite dependent on uh, policies. And we didn't really want to, to be dependent on those things. We thought that we, we want to find some, some area where you can make more of an impact uh, as, a, as a small startup and the small investors and realize that food tech is that space. Uh, there are a lot of things happening in, in food tech. Um, both on, on research level, but also on commercial, commercialization level uh, that shows that uh, even, uh, even small startups can, uh, can have a, a path to become huge without being too dependent on policies or big corporates and letting them, um, letting them grow. You can compete as a startup. I think it's partly because of the consumer focus of, of food. Uh, in the end, there is a consumer that's, that's going to eat the food. Uh, everything along the, the food value chain, all the way from uh, from agriculture to uh, to packaging and, and e-commerce, is um, uh, to take the consumer into account. And if consumers start changing behavior, if they start being attracted by new brands, for example, then sort of that trickles down all the way down to uh, to agriculture in the end. Um, that's a way for startups to affect the whole industry without being too dependent on external factors. So is this a journey you 
planning to do as you go or is there some big idea already behind it uh, i mean if you ask me five years i'll tell you there was a there was a excellent uh, um, uh, strategy in how to become what we have become in five years but um i mean like like most other things i have to admit that it's um um like it started out as we decided that last year we should spend at learning as much as possible I had spent some time in food tech, but not high impact in any way. That was online food delivery, uh, so I didn't really know how the sort of the high impact aspects of of the food industry work today. Uh, we didn't have the networks in that niche. Um, we didn't have the um, uh, the connections with the uh, the entrepreneurs that we wanted to invest in either. So we had to spend a lot of time just learning about the space and finding the entrepreneurs, finding investors, finding the experts. Uh, so we decided to spend last year investing our own money uh, in high-impact food tech startups at seed stage uh, alongside bigger investors who've been in the space for, for longer. That, that was a way for us to learn. We did about seven investments last year, um, 50 200 k uh, tickets, uh, US dollars, that is um, just as a way to learn. Um, and now I'd say that we we have learned a lot. We have realized that this is uh, sort of the perfect space to focus on from our perspective, both as, as small investors, uh, but also from an impact perspective. Uh, the more the more we learn about the food industry, the more we learn that uh, it's really one of the few key areas uh, to reducing uh, the negative effects of, of climate change and, and human health. Um, can be radically improved by the food system as well. So it's um, uh, it's a super interesting area from both of those uh, aspects, um, and we also see that it's definitely doable to change things from from uh, the startup perspective, um, which was also one of our assumptions. We're going to spend um, all our time on food tech. Uh, we are thinking about how to leverage that more than just investing our own money in, in super small tickets. Uh, but that's that's still up for discussion. What it will look like. Um, we have spoken to uh, a few other uh, individuals and organizations that are also doing their own direct investments. So we're thinking that maybe we should start work, working together somehow, uh, pooling the money perhaps. Um, but uh, it's, it's still too early to tell. Uh, I'll probably have a great story in a few years on exactly why we chose a, a certain path. But. Uh, um, Right now, it's still a bit up on there. What we do know is that, I mean, this is happening. Uh, we definitely see that food tech is, is changing the world uh, to the better. Uh, it could be faster. We think we can help accelerate it. Um, so we should definitely sort of be active and do a lot of investments in the space. That will be great, both from an e-perspective perspective and financial perspective, if we, if we don't mess up. But it's, um, uh, it's too early to tell exactly what the, what the best model is. Is, but we definitely want to be on that jump on that train before it leaves. What is your favorite word? Oh, my favorite word. It's um, uh, it's serendipity. Uh, I love that word for um, for many years. Ever since I went into a uh, the best ice cream bar in the world, I think in in New York on Manhattan. Um, there's an ice cream bar called serendipity, which I didn't understand the word by then, but I thought it found. It sounded funny to say serendipity. Just taste it. It's it's so fun to say. Uh, then when I realized that it means uh, like happy coincidence, uh, I just sort of fell in love with it. 
Uh, I wanted to name my own company Serendipity uh, when I started investing, but then I realized there was another investing stock called um, uh, named Serendipity. So I couldn't do it. And I was like frustrated for, for days that I couldn't use the word Serendipity. But uh, at least I get to say it here. That's fun. What is your least favorite word? I don't think I have one. I mean, I, I, I tend to dislike negativity. So I guess maybe like the word no is something I, I usually don't like to hear. Um, I don't like the idea of uh, like limitations uh, or negativity or like obstructions to people who, um, who want to be creative but are limited by, um, by other people or, or by systems. Um, like stopping things. I guess no is a word that symbolizes that. Um, I also think we, we tend to, uh, as individuals, we tend to value negative consequences of, of actions higher than positive consequences. Uh, so even if an action has, like in total, uh, positive consequences, humans are likely to uh, oppose it um, if there are also obvious negative consequences or risk. Um, especially if, if the negative consequences come first. Um, I've been so frustrated the last, well, more and more, but especially like the last year or so when I uh, spent more time in food tech and realized how, even though I, I, I do claim and, and uh, think that um, startups can really make a difference by being innovative and creative, but I, I still get so frustrated every time I see that there are big corporates or, or politicians trying to stop uh, creativity, trying to stop the future from happening um it was a, a tweet not long ago from the french minister of agriculture um when he read about that singapore was the first country in the world to uh, open up for cultivated meat i mean lab-grown meat uh, to be sold to consumers uh, then his his first gut reaction was to go to twitter and say this will never happen in in france not under my watch uh, meat will always be be natural for animals and never be grown in the lab I think it's just such a, a tragic uh, attitude uh, that the new things cannot happen because, well, you should ask him why. Why? But uh, the French are known for 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 protecting their uh, their farmers. Uh, so yes, by protecting like an old industry that we know is in many ways crazy for um, for especially for the climate. It's um, it's just tragic. Sorry, that was a long rant on the word no. <laughs> what turns you on, creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? I really get excited uh, when I'm around people who are uh, intellectually honest and uh, sort of have the curiosity and energy to uh, question their own beliefs. I think uh, intellectual dishonesty is... Uh, is increasing, or at least it's become more apparent lately, uh, with the filtered bubbles on social media and uh, access to sort of the information and the, the quote-unquote facts that that you that you prefer yourself. I, I still sort of maybe that makes me appreciate even more when people obviously are willing to uh, to question their their beliefs and um, uh, not making up their mind too quickly. Uh, but showing the willingness to to listen to contradictory information. So, um, there's a model I heard about uh, not long ago uh, that's called strong opinion weekly held, which basically means that uh, you, you try to make up your mind early uh, in a certain topic, 
which helps you structure your thinking about it. And if you wake up in the middle of night with a gun to your head, you uh, sort of you know what what your decision or your thought is. Uh, but the opinion itself is very weakly held, uh, which means that you, you can always be changed when new information appears. And if you convince yourself that this is my approach, and I think it's easier to accept that yes, of course, I, I do have opinions, but they are also uh, they are changeable. Uh, I've been using that more and more the last uh, the last few weeks, and I, since I heard about it, and I think it helps. It really helps structure your your thinking and being more open to um, to changing your mind. What turns you up? That has to be that has to be the opposite. Sorry, boring answer. But uh, I mean, when people are not curious and and don't want to learn uh, or improve things, uh, just like lazy and happy with with status quo. Uh, I mean, partly that's that's a good thing that that sort of from a happiness perspective that you uh, that you can be happy with what you have. That's great, and I, I practice that a lot. Uh, and you should definitely try to do that, but. Uh, um, only doing that and not being curious, not trying to learn, that's, uh, yeah, that really turns me off. What is your favorite curse word? It has to be Swedish, fan, uh, which basically means, well, it, it means the devil, but I guess more translated means like fuck or something. Uh, I'm not sure if I use it that much, but it, it feels like easiest to say when you ask for a, for a curse word. What sound or noise do you love? It has to be my... Uh, my one-year-old uh, daughter laughing. Uh, I, mean, I guess this is this is a cliche as well, but it's. I mean, that's just irresistible. Uh, yeah. What sound or noise do you hate? I mean, I I I, I really love my daughter, but like when she wakes up at 5 a.m. in the morning, and I hear her, I hear her say, "Daddy, play." Um, and I know that it's go- now it's going to be impossible to get her to to fall asleep again. Uh, I mean, hearing that is not it's not what I'm what I'm looking for. What profession, other than your own, would you like to attempt? It has to be something where uh, I can like use both my body and my brain uh, and and create something, see something being built, um, like a, a baker or uh, building furniture. Um, oh, but it, it has to be uh, it has to be baker. I enjoy more than furniture what profession would you not like to do uh, definitely politician i mean there are probably lots of them but uh, top of my head uh, being a politician i mean just looking at politics taking place in a, a hundred person startup uh, that that that's more than enough for me um i i really hate when uh, things are not focusing on like rational uh, improving things uh, or um, if people are not focused on meritocracy, where the best ideas wins or the best facts wins, but you start like running politics either in an organization, but I mean, I think that's just uh, politics uh, on a higher level when you become a real politician. Um, I spent some time trying to figure out how politics works, and I, I can't even imagine what it would be like to uh, spending my days working with that in practice. If you could be a co-founder of any startup in any era, which one would you choose? One of the ideas I had when I um, came out from my own business and started thinking about a new business, which I still haven't seen happen, and I'm happy to give that idea away. Um, it's tricky to execute, but I really want to start a startup or uh, see someone start a startup. I'm happy to fund it. Ping me if you're if you're starting this. Uh, it's like the health tech startup that somehow is able to collect 
lots and lots of global anonymous, of course, health records, including like personal background, symptoms, diagnosis, treatments, results from those treatments, long-term effects, um, and ideally also collect like DNA, um, regularly measured blood tests, uh, poo samples, like everything that we today think is important to uh, the health of, a, of an individual. And if you if you can get access to all that data, then by applying machine learning, I'm pretty sure that we could uh, create virtual doctors that are uh, much better than anything we can imagine today. Um, and by doing that, we would also be much better to proactively realize that something is going on or soon, go soon going on um, in a human being and be able to prevent that before it even becomes a disease. I think that would be a major uh, leap forward in terms of uh, human health and would probably improve humanity as a whole a lot. So I'd like to start that startup. Any final words for the audience? If you are thinking about starting a startup, uh, like do it. Um, it's always easy to sit around like I am doing or have been doing for a few years, trying to sort of wait for the for the perfect moment. Um, but if you have the opportunity to to do it, and uh, especially if you're still quite young, maybe you're still studying, maybe you have uh, somehow secured your your personal. Uh, financial situation, uh, then so even if you don't have the perfect idea, it doesn't really matter. You can do it just for learning. And then when you have the perfect idea, maybe you, it's, it's easier for you to make the decision. Um, so yes, just do it. Thank you, Eric. This discussion has made me hungry. <laughs> Thank you, Petri. Me too. Let's have a pizza. Thanks for listening. Before we go, could you do me a favor and share this episode with one person you think could benefit from it? This helps to get the word out and reach more founders that might benefit from the discussions. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.